We're in Romans chapter 2, heading back into our series, The Gospel of God, after taking a couple of weeks off. In chapter 2, it's page 940, if you're using a pew Bible this morning, 940. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impertinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor Jason mentioned we have not been in this for a while, and... uh... This morning we're going to launch into chapter 2 of Romans and uh, Lord willing we'll just march our way through this book which is really the heart of the gospel. There is no book that better expounds what God has done in Christ for us and so I hope that if you miss some of the messages you'll pick them up on the website and be able to stay with the flow as we walk through these books. But today, as we begin in chapter 2, we need to go back just for a moment to look at kind of a summary of chapter 1, and I want to do that quickly this morning. In chapter 1, we spent lots of time talking about the message that Paul was heralding. He wasn't just uh, whispering it or kind of sharing with a few of his friends. The inference of Romans chapter 1 is Paul has a message and he is heralding that message because it is so significant. In fact, he finds that as he heralds it to the Romans that there are all kinds of temptations to be quiet. There are all kinds of temptations to, to silence, to be silenced because people are attempting to shame him and pushing it upon him and yet he pushes through that. He doesn't, he doesn't allow himself to be ashamed of this message. In fact, he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And the only reason he would say that is because there were some who wanted to do that. And the temptation and the propensity to that, for that to happen was there. But Paul pushed through it because he had found something in that gospel that caused him to be sustained by it and not to cower from it. And that was this, that what God required of a people to be reconciled back to him, what God required... He also provided. That's what the message of of Romans is about. That what God requires of people who have broken a relationship with him, to have it restored, he provides. A righteousness from God. In verses 16 and 17, you get the heart of what he talks about in all of Romans. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also the Greek. For in it, that gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. 
As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the gospel is a righteousness. It's about a righteousness that God has provided. Now, it isn't about the fact that God himself is righteous, although that's true. When it says here, the righteousness of God is revealed, it's, it's not that Paul is saying that the righteousness by which God is righteous is revealed, because, to be honest, if that's all it was, that would not be good news. That would not be something Paul would want to herald. In fact, that would be something that would cause great trepidation for Paul and should for us as well. Because if all we had to know was that God is righteous, that's not good news. Because inherently within us, in fact, what Romans chapter 1 teaches is that all of us know that we aren't. And to only know that God is righteous would not be a message that would be heralded by Paul. Rather, what he is saying is that God has attained a righteousness. The God-man, Jesus Christ, attained it in coming to be fully man and continuing to be fully God. For all eternity past, he was fully God, but 2,000 years ago took on flesh. Took on flesh that he might attain a righteousness that he then could give to us who are unrighteous. That's what the gospel is about. He did it by dying, yes, but he also did it by perfectly living. He lived perfectly and attained a righteousness that he is willing to give us. He who had no sin, the scripture says, became sin for us. That's the dying part. That's the wrath of God falling on him that should have fallen on us. But not just that, but he takes the righteousness that he has attained and gives it to us. One other person says, the righteousness that he demands, he freely gives to, not, to us, not on the basis of works, but on the basis of faith. That's what it says in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He gives it to all who will trust him for it. And that's what Paul had come to know and experience, and it, it was not going to be shamed out of him. He was not going to waver because it was such a precious truth. Well, that was the first 17 verses of Romans. And then, and then Paul turns a corner in verse 18 of chapter 1. He turns a corner that he's going to be going around for quite some time. In fact, all the way through chapter 3, Part of chapter 3, he's going to stay going around that corner. And the corner is this. He turns his attention to why we so desperately need that righteousness. And in verse 18, he launches into it. And in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then he goes on to just continue to talk about that truth. And what we found in verses 18 through the end of the chapter in chapter 1, is really Paul's description of the pagan world of his day, the primarily Gentile world of his day. It's a description of how sin has overtaken it. It's, it's a description of how they didn't retain a knowledge of God and what that resulted in. Their thinking became futile, the Scripture says. They worshiped the creation rather than the creator and then it says, in stark 
language three different times that God gave them over to things. In other words, he let them go and all kinds of ungodliness came upon them. He gave them over to dishonorable passions and then he just kind of sums it all up in verses 28 through 31. Just listen to the summation of this. It says, and actually begins in verse um, 29, it says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips and slanderers and haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That's what he ends with at the end of chapter 1. In verse 18, he begins and he starts the argument of the reason why we need that righteousness. And he goes all the way through the end of chapter 1 and all the way through chapter 2. He continues on the same subject. And then he comes in chapter 3 to kind of land that plane and we'll turn a corner in verses 19 and 20. But listen to how he ends that argument. I gave you how he began it. For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then at the end, the bookend on the other end of that is this. Now, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth shall be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. In other words, he, he begins an argument of why we need that righteousness. And he just shuts down every argument, shuts every mouth that wants to somehow say, but, but, until he comes to chapter 3 and verse 20, and he says, every mouth is stopped. All, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, I said in, in chapter 1, his argument and what he describes is primarily the pagan Gentile world, the world who has not retained a knowledge of God. And it's led to all kinds of ungodliness. And that's what happens when, when, a, when a group fails to retain a knowledge of God. It takes them places that are not good. But now we turn to chapter 2 and verse 1, and I want to look there now. It says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Now, what's he doing here? What's he saying when he says, therefore, you have no excuse? Because what he said in chapter 1 in that that description beginning at verse 18 to the end of the chapter, he says, they're without excuse. One of the things he says, they neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him. They are without excuse. And he's speaking now again, primarily of the pagan Gentile world. They're without excuse. But then he goes again and he says, therefore you have no excuse, O man. Is he just saying it again to the same group? I don't think so. He, he's turned now to a different group of people. Maybe in some ways, kind of an imaginary group over in the corner. And he begins a dialogue with that group. And if you're going to describe who that group is, it's, it's primarily those of a religious type, those who have not fully rejected a knowledge of God. 
And they're over in the corner looking at the description of the pagan Gentile world and they're saying this, we have not forgotten God. I'm glad we're not like them. We have not done that. And they're measuring themselves up in relation to them. We are not like those godless pagans. But what they're involved in and what he comes against now is a, is a smug finger-pointing that flows out of a self-righteousness in those people. That's what he begins to turn to now. Primarily, the Jews. Not maybe totally. There may have been some Gentiles in that group. But primarily, he turns from the pagan Gentile world to the Jewish community now who would have the temptation to say, we haven't, we haven't rejected fully a knowledge of God. We are not like those godless pagans. We've not gone to some of the extremes you have described in chapter 1. But he also then comes to them and says, you're sinners too. That's basically what he says. Because what his argument all the way through now to chapter 3 is every mouth will be stopped. He stopped the mouth of the godless pagans, Gentiles. Now he turns to stop the mouths of the Jewish religious ones as well. He, he gave the reason why the Gentiles needed that righteousness. He turns now to the Jews who really didn't think they needed it and says the same thing to them. He says the same thing to them. What I want to, what I want to do now is look at the smugness of, of this group in the corner who Paul is directing this conversation to and look at where their smugness rested. Look where their self-righteousness rested. First of all, it rested in the fact that they believed they were God's chosen people and were, in a sense. They were. The, the Old Testament talks about that God set his love on a people. And the people that he set his love on in the Old Testament were the Jews, was the Jewish nation. Abraham is the father of that nation. But what they didn't understand and what they had forgotten was that God didn't choose them because they were more righteous than the other nations. It, it's clear in Scripture. They, they weren't no more numerous. They weren't more godly. The reason he chose them is he chose to put his love upon a people. And he chose to set his love upon a people and a nation that he would bring forth a Messiah from. But they had begun to take that in ways they shouldn't take it. And they began to believe they were a step above. In fact, when they heard some of these descriptions that were made of the pagans, again, they said, we're not like that. We're God's people. And they dismissed it. They dismissed it because of their feeling about the Gentiles and their own sense of chosenness that they had misunderstood. The second thing that they had forgotten, they, they forgot what it meant to be chosen by God, that it wasn't because they were more godly than other nations, but because God chose to use this people. The second thing they forgot is their history. 
you take the Old Testament and you read the story of the kings. And in the beginning, God was to be their king, but they didn't like that very well. And they decided, we want a king. And so God gave them what they wanted, and it was a disaster. King after king after king was a disaster for Israel. Because they had rejected the true king, said, we want a king like all the other nations. You see, they were chosen by God to be different than the other nations. But they looked around them and thought, we want to be like the other nations. And it was disaster after disaster after disaster. Rebellion followed by repentance, rebellion again, and repentance and rebellion. They forgot their history. They forgot their sin. And the third thing, they wanted to say, we have not forgotten God. We've not forgotten him. And to some degree, that was true. Part of the reason, in many ways, that they didn't go to all of the depths described in Romans chapter 1 was because they had not fully forgotten him. And the key is fully forgotten him because there were many times when he wasn't the center. There were many times when his glory was not their utmost desire, but it was their glory. This issue of choosing a king and wanting a king and wanting to be like all the other nations. God chose them to display his glory, but again and again and again, these people spurned his glory. They spurned it. Maybe not to all the degrees that were described in Romans chapter 1, though certainly there had to be some who did, but in an overall sense, maybe not to the extreme degree. And yet what the scripture says is, you were not sinless. What he says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, is to the, to the Jewish people who sat in their smugness and self-righteousness and religiosity and thought, ha, good for them. God turns and says, you're guilty of the same things. The same things that you judge them for now and you set in your smugness, you are guilty of some of the same things. And so you indict yourself, if you will. If you're going to, if you're going to um, judge them while you continue to do some of those same things, what you actually do in all of that is you indict yourself. And that's the argument that Paul gives us here. And part of the reasons that they did that, part of the reason that all of us many times can fall into the temptation of this is that we want to judge our own performance horizontally. And that's what they did. They tended to judge their performance on a horizontal level. They looked at all of this description of the Gentile world, of those who had fully forgotten God, and they thought, we're not as bad as them. We're not as bad as them. But what Paul argues is, that doesn't matter. It's not an issue of whether you're as bad as them. It's issue of the fact whether you have sin or not. And he said, you have sin. And one of the things that the scripture clearly taught is that if you do, the same thing he taught in Romans chapter 1 You are without excuse. That's why he says, therefore, you have no excuse. Just like the Gentiles have no excuse, you have no excuse because you participate in some of the same things that they do. And there are two other points that are made here in this text, and that's where I want to spend some time. They are without excuse because of two things. And one of the things is that God is just. In the text this morning, it it says this, 
For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will not escape the judgment of God? Just look at the list. Look at the list if you have your Bibles open. Just go up there and look at the list of the things. That's why I read it this morning in chapter 1. One of the things in my Bible, the very last word says ruthless or without mercy would be what ruthless means, without mercy. Do you think that the Jews were always as merciful as they ought to have been? No, they weren't. Were there times when they were faithless? Many, many times they were faithless. The Old Testament is a picture of times when they were faithless again and again and again. Were they gossips? Certainly, at times. Were they slanderers? Were they haughty? They were haughty right there. They were haughty in the fact that they felt themselves better than the Gentiles. Pride. Were they boastful? Were they foolish? You see, what he's saying is you are condemning them And the very same things are part of you. The the scripture says that the wrath of God, we we, went back over that in verse 19, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's not a matter of degree. It's a matter of the presence of it. All ungodliness. All unrighteousness. What is ungodliness? What is ungodliness? It's, It's any people at any time, who fail to live for the glory of God. My definition of sin, which I think is a good definition of sin, the Bible says whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God, to his glory. But you and I know, and the Jewish people knew, there were times when they didn't do it for God's glory. They did it for their own. And so Paul turns to them, and he says, as he said to the Gentiles, you're without excuse. Without excuse. Just like the Gentiles, you are without excuse. Because God is just. Because God is just. He's absolutely just. He doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't grade on a curve. It it isn't a matter in a horizontal level if you are a bit better than they are. Because that's not the judgment by which God judges. He judges on a perfect scale. He judges without a curve. I remember when I was in, in college, we, I had a class. Um, I had a class actually with a girl who grew up in this church. It was music appreciation. And my only salvation in that class was that the teacher graded on a curve. That's, that's the only way I survived that. That's the only way I didn't fail the class. But God doesn't grade on a curve. God grades justly. He's a just God. And the Bible says that his wrath is against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. His wrath is against all who fail to live, not for the glory of God always. God is just. But it goes on to say God is more than just. In verse 4 it says God is kind because it says Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God is just. The Bible clearly says that. But God is also kind. Both of those things. But they were taking the kindness of God, the fact that they did sin and, and God was forbearing in their sin, the Jewish people. They, they, they weren't punished immediately for their sin, that, that it went on. They, they took the, the forbearance and the kindness of God for granted. And rather than letting it do what it ought to have done, is led them to repentance, it caused them to glory that they're not like the Gentiles. The kindness of God is to bring us to repentance. The kindness of God is to drive us to the apex of the glory of God, which is the cross. Whether we're Gentile or Jew, it doesn't matter. All men are without excuse. All have sinned, it will tell us in Romans chapter 3, and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have participated in the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. It doesn't matter what label you wear. All of us. And the forbearance of God in these days, the kindness of God, is to lead us to repentance. And the purpose of why Paul was writing to the Gentiles and writing to the Jews was that they might come to repentance. They might realize their need of a righteousness from God. He will continue to do that. He'll continue to walk through this again and again and again. It's an interesting thing that we find when we really recognize our sin. When we recognize our sin, we, we, uh, we don't like the justice of God. It, it, it calls us up short. It calls us up short and we stand without excuse before God because he judges justly. And all of us know, all of us know, Jew and Gentile know in the depths of our being what we deserve. And so the justice of God is a difficult doctrine. But then you combine it with the, with the mercy of God kindness of God and that kindness leads us to the cross it leads us to look for a remedy God's forbearance is about us looking for a remedy to acknowledge our sin but whether Gentile or Jew and and run to the cross realize that we need a righteousness outside of us the righteousness inside of us won't do because God is just and doesn't matter who we measure it against it falls short of his perfect standard And so his kindness and forbearance is to lead us to Christ. Where, where the justice of God becomes an incredibly sweet kindness to us. It goes from being something that should strike terror in us, enough terror in us that we run to the remedy of Christ and cause ourselves to be hid in his work and receive his righteousness. But once we're there, once we're hidden in the righteousness of Christ, once we've, we've received that which Christ accomplished and trusted in that for our hope and for our future, 
for our eternal state. That justice then becomes a sweet kindness to us. And here's how it happens. That becomes a sweet kindness to us because we know because God's wrath that was set against us in all of our ungodliness and unrighteousness was poured out on Christ, on the apex of the glory of God, as we've talked about, it won't be poured out on us. The same justice that drives us to the Savior makes us relish in the sweetness of that justice when we know there is a righteousness from God that can be given to us. That's why Paul didn't cower. That's why he didn't run. That's why he didn't allow them to try to shame him because he knew the sweetness of the justice kissing the kindness of God together. I pray that that's the reality we come Sunday to Sunday to worship in, knowing that that wrath that once stood against us now has been poured on Christ and we have the righteousness of God. We're going to sing this morning a song that describes those, I think, who the justice of God leads to repentance. We sang it this morning. It says, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. You're blameless, Lord. My sins against you can't be ignored. They will be punished. I know they must. Your law demands it, for you are just. And they will. They will either be punished on Christ and therefore that justice becomes a sweetness to us or ultimately they will be poured out on us because God is just and there must be a payment for it. Let's stand and sing this morning. You're blameless, Lord. My sins against you can't be ignored. They will be punished. I know they must. Your law demands it, for you are just. If you would come, Everything that I've done wrong Who could stand But there's forgiveness with you, God Have mercy on me Have mercy on me A broken and a contrite heart You won't turn away Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, because of your steadfast of mercy you gave your son 
things I have done What you require Jesus fulfilled I don't deserve it And I never will If you would count Everything that I've done wrong Who could stand But there's forgiveness with you, God Have mercy on me Have mercy on me A broken and a contrite heart You won't turn away Have mercy on me Have mercy on me Because of your steadfast love Have mercy on me Have mercy on me a broken and a contrite heart you won't turn away. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Because of your steadfast love. Because of your steadfast love. pray that you will grant us broken and contrite hearts. Help us to hear what Paul is arguing again and again, that no one can stand. Whether Gentile or Jew, no one can stand in their own righteousness, in their own performance, because all, all are guilty of sin. All of us are guilty of not glorifying you, Father, at times. All of us are guilty of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And our only hope is another righteousness. A righteousness outside of us that was accomplished in your Son. As the songwriter said, what God required... Jesus fulfilled. That is the gospel. That is the hope we rest in this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Go in God's peace.